Welcome back to the Understanding Men podcast, which is basically two guys talking about things that men could but don't speak about anywhere near enough. I'm Luke Sutton, and once again, I'm here with my great friend, Fraser Franks. Thank you for joining us again today. So today's episode's theme is about leadership, being a leader, being a role model, being a male role model. For many men, they might feel they need to be the leader in their household or in their workplace or even amongst a friends group. For many men, they might well feel the need to be a leader, whether in the household or workplace or even amongst their friends. But do we really know what great leadership is? Both Fraser and I have been fortunate enough to have played sport at at an elite level and have therefore seen many different types of leadership. So we thought we'd dive into this. It's also a very common question amongst our our listeners and it comes in different forms, whether it's being discussed as leadership or simply being a male role model. So we're really looking forward to this one. As ever, I just want to check in with Fraser. Fraser, how are you today? We obviously had Sunday lunch together, which was lovely at the weekend. How's things? It's, it's been really good. I, I think I said last week when we checked in that it's been the best I've felt and I've definitely carried that on and it was lovely to spend a bit of time with you and your family at the weekend and you got to meet uh, my daughter Nelly as well. So yeah, I feel like I'm I'm back out and about in the world and yeah, I feel like I've, I've got my independence back and again, just waiting for this last little bit of chest pain to ease up and then, I'm, and then I'll be fit as a fiddle. Yeah, great. <laughs> right, Fraser, let's do this. So... In at the deep end, as always, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who is the best leader you have ever had in your life and why? The best leader? I I thought about this a little bit, but I, I genuinely can't look past my mum. And I know we're going to talk a lot about male role models in, this, so in this episode. Nice, yeah, but I, I have to because she led our family. When there wasn't a male role model in the house, she stepped up and and sort of did both roles. And, you know, she had three kids. She was working. She was taking me to, to football all the time, plus having two other children to look after. And she's carried that. She's carried that through my whole life. You know, she's been to most football games I've played. She's been there for me. She's been there for me during this period in the operation hospital every single day looking after me. So I, I have to go with with my mum as the key sort of leader that I've grown up with and the biggest influence on me. And I've I've probably done a little bit of work on this where I never ever thought that I needed a male role model or a father figure just because of how good my mum was. But with things that happened in you know in my childhood, I always became very protective of my mum. So I think I assumed an early leadership role as well with my siblings and just being protective over my mum. And it's probably not until recently I've realised just how important it is for young men to have that masculine energy around them and that male role model. And I had it to a degree with my granddad. So when I was about eight or nine, we moved out of the family home into my nan and granddad's house and he became that for me. So he was you know, an older man got up, got up every morning at five o'clock in the morning when he was in his 60s and getting in a van, going to work, provided for us. And I took a hell of a lot of inspiration from him, as did my younger brother. And I think my younger brother especially has really started to emulate some of my granddad's behaviours. And he was a big figure in his childhood growing up. So I think my 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 influences at home and my leaders from an early age were my mum and my granddad, sort of those those energies around me. And then I also, you know, had various leaders in professional sport and male role models in in that aspect, which we'll we'll come on to in a little bit, I suppose. But if I flip that question to you, are the are the initial As leaders always. that you, Yeah. <laughs> are the initial leaders that you think of from from the household, from teachers, or is it more developing in your in your sort of later teens and into your professional career yeah it's a good question because I obviously didn't know what you were going to say and then as soon as you said your mum I'd realized that for one reason or another when I was thinking of that question to ask you I immediately just thought about sport and I Mm -hmm. just thought about and actually initially I thought about 
coaches, head coaches or coaches that I've had in my life. And there's two, there's one at school and um, one in professional cricket, who I'll talk about in a minute. But then, uh, and then I start, as you were talking, I was thinking, starting to think of captains that I've played under or played with, or, or even not just captains, but really strong people I've played alongside in a team. And I think we can get to that because I feel like what I've just discovered in those few minutes when you were talking is that leadership comes in quite a lot of different forms and great leaders have slightly different styles or slightly different things that you might take take from them at a different moment in your life, which I think is probably an important thing to say. But there's two coaches I want to bring up who were huge influences on me. The first is a guy called Peter Moores. He was England cricket coach twice. He was my head coach at Lancashire. And he also coached me when I was much younger, when I was kind of 16, 17. I'm trying to think now. Sorry, I might have been a little bit older than that, 18, 19. And he was an exceptional cricket coach, an exceptional man and cricket coach. And I got so much from him. And the other person was a guy called Tim Wilbur, who was actually, believe it or not, my hockey coach when I was at school. I loved hockey like my kids do now. He was also my history teacher and my hockey coach. And I actually wrote about Tim in my first book. I can't, the, calling him Tim feels a bit weird because he was Mr. <laughs> Wilbur to me always. But both men had a massive impact on me. So I was thinking about what is it about both of them that really resonated with me. And I think with both of them, they were very different in style. But the thing that was very common between them was they brought this energy and enthusiasm to what we were doing that I just loved. It was like, I just, I felt like I was at war with them, you know, and I, not at with them. I mean, we were going to war together, you know, and, um, and there was this sort of commitment from them, like real integrity to what they were doing. They just wanted us to do the best we could possibly do. And I know you'll relate to this, Fraser, but I think, especially in like high-level sport, but maybe in leadership around, it's rare to find the purest intentions. Just someone who literally wants the very best for you, the very best for the team or the, the team coming in all formats. That's all they want. They don't yeah. want any accolades. It's not about them. I think that's quite rare, personally. And in both those guys... They brought that energy, enthusiasm, but their intentions were pure. They mm. just, I felt from them, all they wanted to do was make me the best player they could. All they wanted to do was the team to win. They weren't fussed about anything else. And and I think that's what made them so exceptional as leaders. Their integrity was unquestionable. Mm. Um, I mean, did you find during your career that there were coaches you felt like you know, it, might, it sounds obvious, but maybe they had a hidden agenda. It was more about them than it was about you and the team. Did you have that? I, I feel like I had a lot of them. And not not bad-mouthing individuals, but I, I do feel like I had a lot. I've probably got three or four coaches I can think of that were incredible for me. I'll, I'll touch on them after at some point. But we we did an episode on fear. And I think so many coaches, especially in football with how often you lose a job. So many of them manage in fear. They're, they're terrified of losing their job and that translates onto players. And I could never understand why being a, a manager or a leader, why you wouldn't want every single player to feel as good as they possibly could be and to try and give them everything. And instead of berating them or casting them aside if they didn't play well or not talking to them and then when you maybe need them in the future, you've treated them poorly. And then you're like, right, you know, I need you in the team now. I need you to do something for me. I could always sort of see through that. And I was like, you weren't there when I really needed you. And now you need me. The The relationship's changed a little bit and it was more transactional. If you're doing well for me and you're fit, yeah, I like you and, and I'll I'll respect you. But if you're injured or you're not performing well, then I don't want to see you and I don't want to talk to you. And I think that agenda behind it was they needed to do well for themselves, to keep their job, to get a move to a higher level. You know, I didn't play at the top level of professional football. So any coach there was probably looking to elevate their own career as well. But I think you do that by 
making people feel valued and making your players feel valued and showing that integrity. And then players want to do really well for you. My experiences of good coaches was, I want that guy to progress his career. I want him to get to the next level. Hopefully he'll take me with him. And when, you, when you're made to feel like that, you know, not saying that I performed, I always had like a personal pride in my performance. So no matter who the manager was, I was going out there to do, you know, myself proud and to do everything that I could and my family. But there is a, an, a, a, there's definitely an extra percentage that a manager can give you. And I was going to ask you about those two leaders that you mentioned before. When you think of like the emotions that come back, how did they make you feel as a as an individual, as a person? Did they make you feel valued and loved and wanted and all those kind of things? 100%. They made me feel eight foot tall. Hmm. You know, I just felt like real belief from them. And I remember speaking to Peter Moores about this and him saying, which is really interesting point for us to talk about, him just saying, if you help a player focus on their strong points what they're so brilliant at their weaknesses will get smaller and smaller if you just you're constantly reassuring not reassuring but reinforcing how brilliant they are at certain things then their confidence is so high that their weaknesses become smaller it's always stuck with me that and Mm. and now obviously I'm in sports management and honestly it's come with me and I, I once heard a story about the ex-manager of the Spice Girls, Simon Fuller. This is going to sound the most random example, but bear with me. I had a friend, a good friend called Mike McCormack, who used to be high up in Universal Records. And he, and he told me this story that the Spice Girls were performing on stage and Mike and Simon were backstage watching them. And they were just coming to the end of their set. Mike said to Simon, God, this is this is dreadful, isn't it? And Simon said, yeah, it's really dreadful. And then as they came off stage... Simon was like, girls, that was absolutely amazing. Fantastic. You guys were absolutely killing it. And they came bouncing off the stage and they, you know, bounced in the change rooms and off they went. And Mike was uh, said to Simon, you know, why, why did you give them that feedback when you just said what you said to me? And he was like, because you just got to build these people up. You've got to get them to believe in themselves. And when they believe in themselves, they're going to keep moving forward and they're going to keep improving and getting better. If I crush them, we've got no chance. And I thought, it was, you know, it's quite weird to take the Spice Girls as an example on leadership, yeah. but yeah. I just thought it was really relevant to what I'm talking about. You know, it's like instilling what you're saying. It's like making someone feel valued and heard and, and seen and give them belief about what they're mm. brilliant at. I don't, I think that has to be the way to go rather than being quick to judge and mm. crush people. Yeah. There's, a, there's a, a brilliant guy that I know called Brian McDermott does some amazing work he's I think he's eight years sober now he's been a huge role model for me since uh, since I met him a few years back and he's been a, a Premier League manager so manager of, of Leeds manager of Reading but he's also worked he's now director of football at Hibernian in Scotland but he's done a lot of work around recruitment so bringing players in working with scouting departments and he said to me when you go into one of these departments and meetings with coaches or whatever it might be scouts recruitment people They'll always tell you what a player can't do and what he's not good at. His thing is, tell me what he can do. Tell me what he's good at. I think so many, whether it's in sport, music, whatever it might be, we, they look for the absolute perfect person and focus on you know what they can't quite do. So you'll look at a player and go, yeah, but he's, he's not very quick. He's not this, he's not that. But Brian flips it. He's like, no, tell me what he's good at. And you can then flip it and look at six or seven or eight really good qualities that you can work with and you're not going to get that, you know, source of perfection. And as a coach, you can build that that player up instead of looking at all the things that someone can't do. It reminds me of um, Alex Ferguson as well, because as you say there about building players up, you can't please every single member of a squad or an organisation because especially in sport, not everyone can get picked on a Saturday afternoon. But I've heard the way that people like David Beckham and Gary Neville and some of the Class of 92 talk about Alex Ferguson and they say when he's going to drop you from a game, like he'll make it so personal. Like you'll get in the office, he'll be honest with you, or talk to you, and he'll say to you, "You're not playing this weekend, but I I need you for three weeks' time. There's a game. It's against this team. I need you for that game." Gary Neville said he couldn't put his finger on it because he'd come out, he's been dropped, but he's so motivated because he's like, "Right, I need you. You're my man for this game in three weeks' time," and he said he would always keep to his word. 
So if he said, you're playing in two weeks, you're not playing the next three games, which is really hard to hear as a player, but he would focus on that one game and make you feel like we need you in that game. So he said the players were constantly motivated in training. Although they were disappointed they weren't playing, they were focused on something. And I thought that's brilliant because that aspect of not being selected, of not feeling good enough and a manager maybe not communicating that well enough to you, that was the thing I struggled with most in football because it hurt my pride, it hurt my ego a little bit. I felt embarrassed in front of my teammates. When I was on the bench, I often had the attitude, the only way I'm going to get back in the team is if the team loses or a teammate of mine gets injured. So you're sat on the bench thinking, actually part of me wants the team to lose so I can get my place back in the team because if they win, I'm probably going to be sat here for a few more weeks. And I didn't know how to do all that because I felt guilty and a bit of shame around that actually. And then I'd be in the training ground thinking, right, I can't let the manager see me smiling because then he'll think I'm happy to be on the bench and happy not to be involved. So I've got to put on this moody face. But often it was just a lack of communication between myself and the manager because the emotion I was feeling was, I'm absolutely heartbroken that I'm not in the team. It hurts me. It really hurts me. But I never told that to a manager and a manager never said, you know, made it safe enough for me to maybe express that to them. So instead, we don't talk. I feel like I've got to perform a certain way and show this angry side to me, be quite resentful, maybe not a very good teammate. But on the other hand, I feel like we could have had a a decent conversation, being honest and maybe show me what I can do to get back in the team or given me something, you know, a little character dangle so that I'd, I'd carry on. When I look at the leaders that I had and coaches that I had, there was a, a real lack of communication and care at the level that I played with. They didn't know anything about you as the person. They wouldn't know if a player had kids or someone was ill in their family or, you know, they were traveling two hours a day or they might have had something going on in a relationship. It was more, what can you do for me on the pitch and how could I get the best out of you so I can do the best for me? Whereas if you do take that time to get to know your players, your people, get to know what drives them. If you want to motivate a player, know, know his family, know what home life he's got, know what his background's been. And then you can sort of tailor your communication towards that. I think that's a, a real great leader. Mm. And I definitely had a few of those, but I don't think I had anywhere near enough in the professional side when I was you know, a grown man. I still needed to feel mm. valued and like, a, like they needed me. And I think a lot of people in whatever walk of life that is, whether you're in an office or you're getting a promotion at work, whatever it might be. Again, it comes back to some of the things we've talked about. We all want to be loved. We all want to feel like we're wanted and needed. And I think it's down to a leader of an organization or a leader within a dressing room just to try and notice those little signs and try and make pe- as many people as they can feel that way. There's a couple of things I want to kind of pick up on there. I, th- I think firstly, that example about Fergie is such a good one, but his integrity about what he's saying to that player at that time, that I need you in three weeks, is the whole ball game. Because if he doesn't play that player mm. in three weeks, that trick's gone, isn't it? It's trick. So his integrity, yeah. when he says, I need you in three weeks, it has to be so on point. It's It's precious. And I think that level of integrity is massive around mm. leadership. But also just you talking about your own career. I, I managed a Premier League footballer who was at a top top club with a very top manager who is still a t- very top manager. And he got dropped from the team and the assistant manager was sent to tell him, not the manager. And I never forget that thinking, that just doesn't sit right with me that. If you're going to deliver some bad news, it should really be coming from the top man because there's that integrity there, isn't there? So I think it goes all over the place. But I think we're obviously talking in this context about sport because that's what we know so well. But I honestly think this relates to everything. It's being a dad. You know, if you say something and you don't live by your word... The child remembers, you know, mm-hmm. but hang on, you said that and then this happened. It's the same integrity thing. And and with integrity comes trust, doesn't it? If you're a dad who's ready to pounce on the first thing that your child does wrong, 
what coping mechanisms are they going to develop? They're going to develop mechanisms about that are based on fear of like, I don't want to be told off or I don't want to be judged. The same as at work. Do we allow that work colleague to breathe and make mistakes or are we literally on them ready for them to make a mistake so we can tell them that we were we would have done it better? I put my hand up on this a few years ago, more than a few years ago, kind of like 10 years ago. There's someone I work with who... I just noticed I'd got into a pattern of almost waiting for them to make a mistake so I could tell them they'd made a mistake. And I was like, what am I doing? That isn't leadership. That's just pathetic. It's just all so ego driven. This relates, I know we're talking about sport, but this relates to, mm. to, to every walk of life, in my opinion. You described a few bits there, but if you were to design what a leader, some of the qualities a leader would want for you, what would some of those things be? You're doing this again, Fraser. I need to find out where you're getting these bloody questions from. <laughs> I've got some listener who's like giving you, it's like Jeremy Pax from this. Um, that's such a good question. I'm going to answer the questions directly, but I'm going to give yeah. you uh, a, a story that helps me lead into it about Peter Moores, right? I played in a game for Lancashire one, one season. I can't remember when it was. It was in a, in a one-day game, and I was really struggling to adapt my game to the way the game was moving. It was quite clear I was struggling. And I played in this game and I didn't do very well. I couldn't hit the ball for six, fours and sixes uh, enough. And I was really struggling. And I knew that I was basically on the cusp of being dropped. Like genuinely, I was on the cusp of being dropped. And I, I kind of was like, I don't blame them. I'm not performing well enough. My game's not adapted to where the modern game's going, et cetera, et cetera. And we played on the Saturday, right? So I'm, I woke up on the Sunday and I'm like, you know, it's going to be bad news for, for next week. And my phone goes and it's Peter Moores rings me at like quarter to nine in the morning. My my head coach it could be ready to drop me, you know. He, I thought, oh, he's calling me to tell me I'm done. And he rings me up. He goes, oh, I've been thinking about yesterday's performance and I know it didn't go so well for you, but I really want to help you with it. I'm going to help you with it. Meet me tomorrow morning before training and we'll do a one-on-one session and I'm going to help you with it. And we're going to do this together and I think we can move your game forward and get you to that place. And I just remember coming off the phone thinking, this is crazy. Like what a man, what a man on a Sunday morning. He's thinking about, I'm the weak link. Like he could just have just been me off on a Sunday morning whilst he's having a coffee. And he's actually calling me to go, let's get in the nets and and practice together. And so when I think of a great leader, I think of that type of person, that person who just wants to give, wants to Mm. give, wants to be pure. They want to stand up for you when you most need them. They're not fair weather leaders. You know, like your guys are talking about who, you know, if you're playing well, you're going to go with them up higher leagues. But no, you know, these people are there for you through thick and thin. So I just fall back on those words of integrity, energy, commitment, trust. I mean, I haven't even talked about anything technical or skill-based, mm. not at all. I d- you know, I think almost those are like second and third, you know, of intelligence or information. It's just that thing where, yeah, imagine for me, I put the phone down. I was like, wow, what a man. I, and, I, and I went to that session and I literally gave it the, everything I could to, to improve. I'm not sure I improved that much, but I gave it everything. So it's that's what I feel like. Mm. What about you? What, what what would you be your like blend for the ultimate leader? Just touching on what you just said there, there's a, a really good book I read called Leaders Eat Last, Simon Sinek book, and that was really good. And I remember one bit in it saying, with great leaders that you've had in your life, you mentioned the technical and tactical part. You rarely remember actually what they did, whether it was a a training session they did, whether it was a teacher in school, the kind of lessons they did. You just remember how they made you feel. And when I think of some of the top coaches that I've had, and they they came mostly in my childhood, I don't remember one session, one match, one team talk, one inspirational video, whatever they did. All I remember is genuinely like a feeling of what they gave me, like how they made me feel. And there's there's one in particular that I think, and he, you you wouldn't look at him. I always assumed a leader, and it, I think the upbringing in football I had early on, every manager was like an alpha male, every captain was like a hard man, cut his head open. 
there was just that sort of aggression and something about most managers and captains that had that. And I had a coach at Chelsea called Damian Matthew. And he's a, he was a former Chelsea player. His career got cut short for injury. But I had him when I was about 12. And at Chelsea, I, I signed for them when I was nine. And I was always at the bottom of the pack. Never, you know, the top player. Always felt like I was just hanging on, getting another year's contract. And it got to the age of 12 when I was about to have Damien. And I remember the academy manager said to my mum, we're going to give him another year, but he's made it by the skin of his teeth. So going into it straight away, I was like, well, I'm I'm literally at the bottom of the pile because I've just made it here. But he became my manager, Damien. It was the best year that I ever had at Chelsea. I remember it so clearly. And he just gave me so much belief and confidence. And he was like, you you know, you're good enough to be here. They might have said to you, you scraped through. But he's like, from what I see, like, you haven't scraped through. Like, you deserve to be here. And it's probably one of the first people that made me feel, actually, I do deserve to be here. And my mentality went from trying not to be the worst player in training. That was my, <laughs> try not to come last in the running. Try not to be the worst player. And he completely flipped it for me. And I was going into training sessions thinking, I want to win this race or I want to be the best player on the pitch. And he just completely changed my mentality. And I can't really picture what he did for me, but he just spoke to me for five minutes on the side, maybe and asked how I was getting on at school or what my home life was like. What I remember him asking me what music I was into and things like that. And I was like, why is a coach asking me this? But just wanted to know me a little bit more. I, I look at some of the qualities that he had he was quite a quiet coach. He wasn't like a screamer or a shouter, but he also had that little bit where you knew you couldn't cross him. So there was still a little bit of fear that he gave where you thought, right, I better do well because he has got that line where he can he can shout and he can be that dominant leader as well. But most of the time, he's very, very caring and encouraging and telling you what you're good at and telling you what your strengths are and what you bring to the team and what your personality brings. Whereas a couple of coaches before that, just told me all the things I was doing wrong and what I wasn't good at. And I felt like I, I don't really deserve to be here. And he's gone on now and he was he was my under-12s coach. And this season he's been assistant manager at Glasgow Rangers in Scotland. He's had a real big, like good career in, in professional sport. But he's also been out of work and coached seven-year-old kids in the park. And I've gone and seen him and he gives the same energy. There's no ego about him. He gives the same energy to these seven-year-old kids that he's just doing really basic stuff with on like a little summer camp that he does with players that are playing in the Champions League and are internationals. He just loves coaching. He loves developing people and helping people. And again, it's like, what can I give rather than what can I get out of this? And I think when you focus on what you can give, naturally you'll get a return and you'll, you know, people recognise how good you are at your job and they want you around their environment. So for me, like for a leader... I want someone that that cares, that makes you feel valued and wanted. But I do think in a leader as well, I want someone that gives you that security, that feels like they're steering the ship in the right direction and that they, you know, they have that knowledge and understanding and direction that I feel like a leader does need. But I'd, I'd also like a bit of vulnerability in a leader. I told you before, I'm a big Ted Lasso fan. I know you are as well. But I like it when a leader allows themselves to be human in front of people and they go look I don't know every single answer I'm not an expert in every single field but then you also do want that direction of having a strong leader but I definitely think there's room for the vulnerability but well yeah there is room for vulnerability in certain situations so if I take a pilot for example or heart surgeon I had surgery 10 weeks ago if I've got a surgeon that's going right I'm a little bit nervous about this today. You know, I'm feeling a little bit anxious about before. I'd be like, oh my God, what's going on here? So I think that level of authority and of assurance is needed in certain situations. But I also think there's a room to take that mask off. Maybe he could he could do that with colleagues or with people in his circle to go, a bit nervous about this today, but, but he's not going to say it to the patient and scare the patient, if you know what I mean. So a manager... Mm. of a, a professional organization maybe he can have people in the background that he can go i'm a bit unsure about this today i'm a bit worried but he can then go in front of the players at times and and have that confidence to go right this is what we're doing today 
So there's that balance, but still still being vulnerable in certain situations. I know you've got your own thoughts on this. So what do you think about that? Well, I, I it's not necessarily my own thoughts. I, I think I'm just keen to kind of, I mean, the, the, when, when you're describing the person that I think of is, and if no one has watched this series on Apple TV, you must. <laughs> it is literally one of the greatest shows you'll ever watch. Ted Lasso. It's just Ted Lasso, isn't it, Fraser? We're not going to talk about that too much because there might be people listening that have a clue who he is. But if you can get watch Apple TV, watch Ted Lasso. It's fantastic. I think it's interesting because I want to flip it also. You and I are quite similar in nature, but there are people who will be listening to this guy. Oh, come on, you need a bit of old school, shout at people, get, you know, get them going. And it's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because I also played with particularly some very hard men who played and, and change rooms are full of kind of alpha males who are ready to confront each other and very testosterone driven in what we grew up in and some tough conversations which probably got good results and and so there's a time and a place I think for for it I think the key I haven't ever seen a quality leader and I mean that in all walks of life, from being a dad to someone at work to in sport, who devalues people and then gets good results. So if you have to have a stern word and you have to shout, say someone shouts in a change room because of frustration, but it doesn't do it in a way which devalues someone, mm. then I think it can be it can be impactful. But it's when you, when there's a demeaning aspect to it that that it it doesn't it doesn't work as well. I think the the vulnerability around leaders is really interesting one. I hear you that I think that showing that human side is important. But just like you gave the example about your surgeon or the you know the plane taking off, if the plane's going through a bit of turbulence, we don't want the pilot coming on going bloody hell what am, what <laughs> am I going to do here? I'm I'm feeling a bit you know. We want that pilot to come on and go just pop your seatbelts on, all's good. Mm. And then in in his cockpit, he might, he or she might be going, fuck it hell, what are we going to do here? <laughs> and so I think, <laughs> so I think <laughs> the leadership thing, I, I feel it very much in both family and, and, and work, to be perfectly honest. It's like, I have to be strong. I agree. Mm. You have to show that, that human side. But I think sometimes with leadership, people are looking at you to be the calm, assured one. And if you're panicking, everyone panics. Mm. And I think part of leadership is being able to, do you know, maybe even put that front up, even mm. if it's if it doesn't feel that real at the at that time. I know you were telling me what were you telling me about Guardiola and Arteta um, yeah. prior, that, prior to this because that's kind of fits with that. Yeah, he. I'm sure it's in the Arsenal documentary about Pep Guardiola saying to saying to Arteta, who he had as his assistant manager, even if you don't know the answer. If you say it with conviction and pretend that you do, the, the lads will follow. So even if he, he's a little bit unsure in himself, if he goes out in front of a team talk and says, no, this is definitely what we're doing and definitely what's going to work, even if in the background he's thinking, oh, I'm not too sure, people will follow and people will, will go into that. Whereas if he goes into it a little bit half-hearted going, you know, this might work today, then people are going to have a bit of, of doubts about following him. So I under I really understood that element of it, and we've talked about in in previous episodes about like the inherent nature of where we've come from and how cavemen times you would have had leaders of tribes that would go out and if you think about the people that would be left behind, they would look at those people as oh my god like these are the ones that are bringing home the food and that have got us organised and safe and there's definitely an element of safety around leadership. I think you make a good leader makes the people he's working with feel safe and feel secure. There's definitely an element of that for me. Mm. Yeah, I, I like the, I do like the vulnerability side, but I think you can also be a very strong leader whilst allowing yourself to be vulnerable at times. Obviously not coming across as panicking or that you haven't got a clue what you're doing. But there's another manager that I had that really springs to mind and uh, he's called Jamie Day. He's a top, top guy. And he's had all kinds of different experiences. He's he's been out in Bang Bangladesh as their their first team manager of the national team recently, and he's now in League Two. But he was, I think, the word authentic springs to mind with him. And I'll ask you in a bit a little bit about your authenticity when you were you know a captain or a senior player. But I found him just so refreshing and authentic because he was very very quiet. 
he was a player manager. So he'd gone from being one of the boys in the dressing room to then leading the team. He wasn't an alpha male dominant type at all. Again, he had that side in him where if he needed to shout and scream, he'd do it. But I remember the first time I met him, he gave a team talk to, you know, a group and he was like, there were some big older characters. I think some of the players were actually older than he was. And one of the things he said, and I remember him saying was, I don't care how this comes across, but when I'm talking to people at times, you know, if I'm away from away from the game and I'm thinking about things at home, sometimes I like to write down what I'm feeling. So my method of communication might be, instead of me and you having a, a face-to-face meeting across a desk, it might be my style to send you a text message or to send you this or write it down. He's like, because I feel like I can really get my points across in that. But I thought that was brilliant leadership because I was thinking that takes a lot of a lot of guts to say that in front of a group that, you know, I might go to this method of communication rather than being the old school, right? We have to sit down and have this out, actually thinking this is my leadership style. And if I can get my point across in the right way, I don't need to play a character or pretend to be this big alpha male. I thought that was really authentic and it worked. It worked for me. And I look of like authenticity when I became a captain and I didn't have that. I didn't have that what he had. I was the most, <laughs> the most inauthentic captain when I was first given it. And I was first given Why? it probably when I was, I can't imagine just because that. honestly, I tried to be, I felt like my whole persona had to change when I was given the captaincy. It wasn't, you know, your captain. Did you try you know, to be Roy Keane? That's exactly who I tried to be, honestly. Exactly <laughs> who I tried to be. So I was, I was given it and I was a younger player and I was like, Right, I need to show them now who who's the leader. I need to be the loudest one on the pitch. I need to be like, I need to be like the leaders that I've seen on TV. I need to. I was doing stuff in games, like tackles that I would never make, and shouting at refs and shouting at players. And one thing I was was absolutely terrified of confrontation. So I never wanted it to get to a level where I'd have to have a fight in a changing room. I hadn't had a fight since I was about eight years old. So, so I was like, right, I need to balance this because I'm shouting and screaming at people on a pitch. But when it gets into a changing room, I'm actually a little bit scared of what could happen after this. But I was just, yeah, I was just doing stuff like ranting and raving, shouting and screaming, getting myself too worked up before games and over emotional. And it wasn't until I moved clubs and I wasn't captain, then I was given it again later on in life. I had so much more self-awareness. I was quite a loud player, but I was encouraging and I didn't need to grab people up by the throat in the changing room to prove a point to the manager that he's picked the right captain. I could lead by example. I could talk to people in the way that I wanted to talk to them. I was comfortable in my own skin. But in that stage, I didn't really know who I was as a person or a player. I just tried to copy what I saw on TV. But it brings me, I know I know you've captain sides and you know, you've been, you you played a lot longer than I did. So I was I was really looking forward to being a 34-year-old, 35-year-old, but retired at, at 28. So how did you find, did you see yourself as a leader and were you an authentic one? And how, how do you think former teammates would look at you? Oh, it's a good, good end to that question. My mum reminded me when I saw her a few couple of weeks ago that when, when we were, when I was little, one of the coaches in one of the teams said, I've had to make Luke captain because if I don't, he's going to captain anyway. So essentially, <laughs> I think basically I was, <laughs> I was just a really bossy know-it-all. So I felt like, <laughs> you know, captaincy was part of my remit that I'd been given from birth. Yeah, I, d- I always felt like, I, I guess I feel like in life, I definitely, I definitely feel a, a natural... I don't know inclination to lead. I think that that that's probably the right way. I want to I want to move things forward and I want to it's not, you know, I think when I'm at my worst that's about control and I think when I'm at my best that's just about wanting to be proactive and it's kind of found that balance in life. And I think for my former teammates I don't think they would have doubted my commitment or my work ethic or my spirit or anything along those lines I think I think that would have come through I just felt like with captaincy and especially as pressure goes up and I think this is in leadership for people in in the workplace as well as the pressure goes up it becomes more complicated it becomes more than just about walking onto the field and and playing the game you love and, and trying to lead a team through that you know you've already talked about it 
careers, agendas. Well, if this player's dropped, if that manager's under pressure, do I upset this star player? Or, you know, this person said this and these two players are falling out. It just as pressure ramps up, everything becomes more complicated. And I think in, in captaincy, it's being able to kind of manage those sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. But I, I think of it, I think of it as a dad, if I'm honest. And I think we might have talked about this in the being a dad episode. You can shout, you can guide, you can advise, you can tell off, you can do as much of that as you possibly can. But if you don't live it, I think it's very difficult to be an effective leader. We talked about Roy Keane. I I was watching something yesterday, I think. I saw both Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher describe him as the greatest Premier League captain ever. That's some accolade from two players like that, especially one, one being from Liverpool. And so we think of Roy Keane and we think of him shouting at players, refs, you know, getting in fights. But I think most importantly, and from the stories I get that what he was like in training, no one could question him, his commitment. It it wasn't what he said. It was what he was Mm. doing. It was like he played 90 minutes at 100% or 100%, 100% of the time. He went to training and he trained at 100%, 100% of the time. And I think that's it, isn't it? It's it's walking the walk rather than just talking the talk. Yeah. And he, I've, I've heard him talk about this as well, where he said, I think part of the shouting and demanding from others was indirectly so that he would perform better as well. Because he's thinking, oh, really? if I'm shouting, yeah, because if I'm shouting and demanding from teammates, I better be doing it myself. If I'm mm-hmm. shouting at people for giving the ball away or not putting effort in, I have to be seen to be making sure that I'm not doing that. If you're if you're shouting and screaming and demanding at people, but you're not performing yourself, it's a difficult because players will come back and go, hang on a minute, you're not you're not doing your job. How can you tell me how to do my job? So I think underneath it, I think I felt a little bit of that as well, where where I felt like I had to organize and talk on the pitch it made me think right I need to make sure that I'm performing here because if I'm asking other people to do the same I better be doing it myself I think that comes back to um that those modeling behaviors when you talk about fatherhood there if I'm expecting my child to act in a certain way I better be making sure that I'm I'm doing it as well because they could turn around and go hang on a minute dad you do that and then it's (laughs) there's that little back and forth so if I'm saying to my daughter hypothetical but I wouldn't Coca-Cola is the worst drink in the world you should never ever drink that it's poisonous it's this it's that and then I open a a can of Coke she's going to look at me going hang on a minute you just told me that was the worst thing I could put in my body and it's poisonous so you're contradicting the message that you're sort of trying to trying to portray and lead in in a in a way but that that authenticity Mm. piece is I do that does fascinate me in in terms of the workplace and in professional sport as well and it it almost leads to that question I I feel like I've got my own answer on this but do you feel like you can learn to be a leader or that there are certain characteristics where you're you know people say born leader do you think it's something that you can develop and and learn or, or it's like an inherent trait that a lot of people are born with I think another, put that in the top 10 list of Fraser questions. That's another excellent (laughs) one. I think, see, I think leadership's about more than one individual. Honestly, I think really good leadership is about the people around them. And I want to move, I'm going to move this after this onto kind of the role of ego and that sort of thing. Mm. But, you know, if you think of Sir Alex Ferguson, maybe the greatest Premier League manager of all time, think of the people he had around him, including someone like Roy Keane on the field. But, you know, Steve McLaren, Brian Kidd, those guys, you know, I think leadership is more than just about one person. So I think amazing leadership is often when that blend is absolutely hits the sweet spot. So, you know, in the most simple terms, it's like captain and coach or I guess in a business like managing director and CEO or something along those lines or some sort of connection in that that tree in parenting between mother and father or you know whatever the family setup is it's that blend when it's absolutely at its best so if you take that on board is someone born to be a leader or can they be made into a leader 
I think there are people who can be more naturally inclined to want to lead, but that isn't a prerequisite for being mm. successful. But I think it's being able to be the learning bit is being a leader that goes and it goes back to what you said. And I, and I want us to discuss this more. It's kind of recognizing what you're not good at and going, okay, I need someone to help me with this bit. And then that, that blend happens. Sir Alex Ferguson saying, I'm not the guy on the training ground. That's mm. not me. I'm not going to run training sessions. I'm not very good at it. I'm not going to inspire people. I need Stephen Clare and Brian Kidd, Carlos Quieras, you know, that I need those guys to come and do the training ground and that I, I sit aside. And I think those are the best leaders, the ones who are able to learn how to fit within the blend that makes it right. Mm. And I think that can be developed. I think that can yeah. be developed. But I think, and this is the question that I wanted to ask you that relates to this is what role does ego play in good and bad leadership? I definitely feel like I know how it plays a role in bad leadership. I think it is that wanting or feeling the need to, like you talked about the the coach before that didn't really need the praise or was doing it for the giving sake. He was doing it to to make people better, to make people to, for the team. I think when ego comes into it, you're you're looking out for number one. You want to be seen as being the main man. You want to be seen as, you know, everyone's looking at me for directorship and you sort of thrive off of that and maybe abuse that as well. When it comes to, it's a tough question that, Luke. It's one of your better ones as well. So let me give you it. I'll help you out a little yeah. bit here. Let's think of some football managers. Jose Mourinho. Yeah. We, I guess we would say huge ego, would we say? Yes. Yeah. But is one of the most successful managers of all time. Yeah. Versus Potticino or mm. Klopp, where mm. I'm sure they've got some ego attached, but it doesn't seem to be about needing to be front and centre or Mikel mm. Arteta not mm. needing to be front and centre. Where does it fit? You know, if you, you look at a Guardiola versus a Mourinho, it feels like Guardiola doesn't need to be in the spotlight quite mm. as maybe as a Mourinho. I might be doing him a real disservice. Yeah. Is that what makes Guardiola arguably a better manager than Mourinho? I definitely feel like I know who the happier person would be. Right. I feel like Jose Mourinho plays a character a lot of the time. Mm. And I feel like when he did first come on the scene at Chelsea, it was so refreshing that he did have this ego and he was different and he had this character. But I do feel like he's felt he's had to live up to that throughout and almost play Jose Mourinho where, you know, you look at some of his press conferences and some of the fallouts and stuff. I don't know how authentic some of that is. And then I watched an interview of him when he was out of management. He just seemed so relaxed and like a really nice guy. And they were walking on the beach with Sky Sports and he was saying what he's going to do when he goes back into football and how he's mellowed. And then he went back in, this is before Man United, I think, and just like completely picked up where he left off. In the last two days, I've actually listened to two podcasts. And I grew up a massive Chelsea fan and Mourinho was the first team manager when I was in the academy. So he'd often come over and watch games and he just had this presence where you'd be like, oh my God, like he's watching today. We, I need to do well. But it was John Terry and Frank Lampard were the two podcasts that I've listened to in the last couple of days. And they both adore him they said they would have done absolutely anything for him they both cried when he when he left the club he seemed like if he liked you you were you were his and you were all in and you do absolutely anything for him they they both said that they they changed their whole lifestyles for him they just wanted to please him but he also had a massive group of players that would say the complete opposite so it was like, if he likes you and you're you're one of his, then you're in and you're, all you're going to feel is love. But if you're not in that category, you're going to feel abandoned. You're not going to feel good enough. You're going to get embarrassed in front of the team. And they both spoke about examples like that. And I think I look at someone like Pep Guardiola, I think especially, and I just think he, I don't think he needs to be front and centre. I think, I think he knows like what I'm doing is good enough. If I get plaudits in the background, so be it, but. He's just obsessed by his craft and developing people and winning. Where I think Jose Mourinho is trying to prove something all the time and trying to, I think he needs the accolades. I think he needs the attention. 
I don't think Guardiola needs that. And I think I look at someone like Pochettino as well and I see the way that people talk about him. I think he's happy to be in the background. I don't think he needs to be front and centre, all eyes on me. I need to show how well I'm doing. I think he's quite happy just his team doing well and he he takes the plaudits in the background. Well, I think Jose Mourinho is more of an individual leading the team. Pochettino, Guardiola, I think they're more part of the collective, if that makes sense a little bit. Mm, I, I'll give you kind of my tuppence on it. I, I, I think that the question of, of whether Guardiola needs the limelight or wants it, I think he's coming from a different place, which, you know, the, going in the limelight is the kind of end result. I think I think they're coming from a different place. So I think Mourinho, that kind of big ego, I'm in charge, it's all about me, you need to listen to me, da 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 I think that can be very effective leadership in the short term. Mm -hmm. And I think because that type of leader can create a siege of mentality, they can garner this sort of real intensity about what they're doing. And they're like, follow me, I've got this. And everyone goes, yeah, we're off. And someone as driven as Mourinho, as charismatic, as as technical as he as he has been, I, I think that has been really effective. But if you look at his career, he's never been at clubs for very long. Mm. And I think it's a lot to do with the fact that that's driven leadership, driven by a lot of ego. And I mm. think that eventually wears out. Those players get tired of that, it being all about mm-hmm. him. They feel there's a different agenda and eventually, and all it needs to do is erode slightly and as soon as it starts to erode, it's it's essentially gone. You yeah. can't you can't rebuild that. That when that trust is gone. Whereas I think if you could look at leadership, Guardiola style, I'm, I'm sure he's very sure of himself, but it's not driven by ego. It's much more sustainable because he's bringing people in rather than separating people. Mm. And I think bringing people in creates that belief that we're all in it together. You know, they're not chopping and changing players that much at City. I know they're they're buying, they buy, but they stick to players for for a long period of time. Mm. Just look at Mourinho's reign at clubs. It's like you're in, you're out, you're in the in crowd, you're in the out crowd. And it's transactional, isn't it? Yeah, and it's just a different style. You know, like Mm. if you you were going... Right, and I'm Christ. I'm no football expert, am I? But but I, it's just a leadership thing. I think if you were, you know, it's like if you're going to shout at your kid, you shout at your kid really, really badly about something. You're right; that kid won't do that for a while. But in that process, you've probably lost them slightly. Mm. Whereas the other person who comes from a place of going, right, I'm not going to belittle you and make you think, well, I'm I know it all, and you don't know anything as a dad probably it's more long-term, it's more sustainable. And I think those are those two different things where ego mm. can play such a different role in it. Because I, I also, what, I, I guess, yeah. sorry, go on, Fraser. No, I was going to say, what a brilliant way to put that. And it just, I was I was trying to articulate it, but you just you just did it perfectly there, I think, in, in, in those comparisons. And I also think if you, it's probably off topic a little bit, but if you look through, why Jose Mourinho has taken that style. I think he's had to he's had to try and put that on and prove that. If you look at the roles he had before management, he was a translator for Bobby Robson. So he probably didn't get that respect that Pep Guardiola got being a top Barcelona player. Pochettino got playing in World Cups for, for Argentina. So he probably felt Right, I've got to, I've got to do something. I've got to show. I, I want I want to show people and get that respect, and I want people to talk about me, and I want that adulation that comes with being the top man and all eyes on me. And I think that that plays into part of his style. I think he's had to prove a point at times. But where you say that is perfect. It's every manager's job that he's had is short term, and there's a lot of chopping and changing, a lot of transaction, and then comparing it to parenting is the exact same like when you take those those two methods it's like yeah short term you'll get you'll get a, a good result but long term it's it's not sustainable mm. now and also i think you know that the ego side of it is i think leadership just like anything evolves over time you know whether you evolve as a parent don't you, you evolve as someone in the workplace pep guardiola will have evolved as a football manager no question the guys that i've talked about 
will have evolved as people and as, and what they do. But I think to evolve, and again, Mourinho is a good example of this, you need to get your ego out of the way at some point and go, I'm not very good at this bit and I need to get someone near me or I need to go and learn this in order to move forward. Because if you keep doing what you're doing and keep getting what you're getting, and if the game changes and we're talking about football and develops in a certain way and you keep doing what you're doing, then you're going to be stuck in that lane, aren't you? And that's where yeah. ego, I think, can get in the way of that. And the best leaders that I've ever seen in my life have, have had exceptional people around them. And to get those exceptional people around them, they have to show some humility to mm. say to that person, I think you are so important because you know more than me in this area and I value you and I want you to be here rather than the ego going, no, it's all about me. I know everything. Mm. Listen to me. That's it. I need, and it's two different styles. That that word humility, I think is so important for a leader. And although you want to show that level of assurance and, and for people to follow and for people to look for you for guidance, if you don't have that level of humility, you'll stick by the wrong decision no matter what. So even in the background, you might go, this isn't right, but I've said it now, so I have to stick to this. I have to continue to be the alpha male. I have to, you know, I can't go back on my word. Whereas I think a, a top leader has that level of humility, gets the ego out of the way and goes, and I've had it with managers before that have go, you know what, boys, hands up, I got that wrong before. I got that wrong today and I'll take the heat for that. I'll go and talk to the press. I picked the wrong team there today. I put us in the wrong shape. And instead of players looking at that as weakness or blame, you go, for me, for the genuine leaders I've had, you go, wow, that is fair play. Like That is good leadership for me. Showing that level of humility, not going, you all got that wrong and I got it right and I'm sticking by that. It was your fault. Going, look, hands up. That, that was my mistake. I got that wrong. Maybe could have done something different there. And I think whether that's to a whole group, which I've had before, or whether it's maybe to a couple of players or just to your staff members, having that humility to admit, I've made a mistake here and people are looking at me for the answers, but yep, hands up, got that one wrong, or maybe I could improve on that. And that's where I think, where you talk about Ferguson and other people, having those people around you that can maybe challenge you on that, but that you can talk to openly. And we, we're going to have Stephen Reid on this podcast, hopefully soon, who's um, he's assistant manager. pressure there, Fraser. Yeah. Who's assistant manager at Nottingham Forest. <laughs> and I know, um, you know he's a massive Premier League club and I know that the manager sees him as as that character. He sees him as really brings a different perspective to what he's doing, what the manager's doing. He can challenge him on certain things. The manager feels safe enough to go, I think I might have made a mistake there. I think I've got that wrong. You know, he's an exceptional coach and leader himself, Stephen Reid. But he's also... He knows what that leader needs. That leader, it's a lonely place at times to be that leader and to for, for people to be looking at you for all the answers. If you've got people around you that you can share the load with and share the burden with, and I think that's what he does amazingly well. He's a, he's a trained counsellor, he's a former player, very calm. That leader needs people around him that you can go, struggling a bit here. You know, everyone's looking at me for the way forward and I, I don't really know it. And I think that's where if you've got two or three people around you and, you know, it comes back to some of our, our other episodes where you're being vulnerable and you're, you're being open and honest with other men around you, which is what this podcast is all about. I think in a leadership role, as I said, it can be a lonely place. You need those influences around you that you can talk to openly and honestly, take that mask down, but that can also challenge you a little bit and have a different opinion and say, have you thought about this? Or do you need someone else to do that part? Or do you need help? And actually accepting help, which... Again, in a leadership role, I think far too many think, no, I'm fine. I can do this by myself. Actually going, yeah, I could do with a little bit of help on this. And I think that's that definitely differentiates great leaders as well. Absolutely. Well, we're coming to the end. So I'm going to leave you with this little bit. I think if you're listening and you, you really want to be more of a leader in whatever aspect you are in your life, you feel like you, you need to be and you, you need to step up, but you don't, it doesn't come naturally to you and not, you're not quite sure what to, how to go about it. 
The biggest thing I would say is leadership isn't about great big speeches and big shouting, all of that kind of stuff. Leadership is about showing up every single day and showing people your integrity through your actions. And so if you want to lead more, lead a good life, lead the good life that you need to, which in ever aspect we're talking about here, if it's in the workplace and you want to lead, show people what you do in the workplace, not through words, but through actions. And I think so much leadership is driven by that rather than the big loud mouth who might say a lot, but not do a lot. So show up. That's it. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Men podcast. You can find us on all major social media platforms, including Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And as ever, we'll be promoting every episode via our own personal social media. We want this podcast to be as interactive as possible. We do say that every week, but for really good reason. And we want to have the conversations that you want us to have. And today has been very much about one of those. So please come and find us on our social media or our own personal ones. Message us, comment, direct message, whatever you need to. Also, if you've liked what you've heard, then go ahead and hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review. We've been lurking on 18 reviews i'd like us just to get up into that maybe that quarter of the century 25 mark would be lovely and if you do leave us a five-star rating it will help other people find us so thank you and goodbye for now